Senator Kim Ward broke the glass ceiling in Pennsylvania politics when she was elected by her mostly male caucus to be the very first female majority leader in Pennsylvania's history. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kim. Welcome to Brews and Views. I'm Matt Briette, President and CEO of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Uh, my guest today is Senator Kim Ward. She represents the 39th Senate District, which covers uh, the central portions of Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania, uh, which is in the western part of our Commonwealth. Uh, welcome to Brews and Views, Kim. Oh, thanks for having me. I like that little catchy title. Oh, well, yeah, that's right. Usually we're sitting down with a brew, whether it's coffee or beer, uh, but I know we're both without either of those, but uh, uh, we hope at least we'll have some views here that we can share with one another. Uh, but I really appreciate your coming on. Uh, and it's my honor to uh, interview uh, the very first woman ever elected to serve as a majority leader in the Pennsylvania General Assembly. Uh, uh, and you did so by a, a number of hours because uh, over in the House, they did something similar. But um, that was uh, a, a big day for you, I know, uh, last November when you were elected by your colleagues uh, to be the floor leader. Uh, so congratulations on that honor, Kim. Oh, thank you very much. And it, it really is quite an honor that my colleagues uh, put confidence in me to do this. So I'm just going to keep my nose to the grind and try to do a great job for us. Well, I want to get into what that looks like uh, here in a bit, but before we kind of get into the nitty gritty of the job and the issues that uh, you're working on, uh, tell us a bit about um, how you ended up into politics, you know, uh, and and maybe before you even got into politics, uh, what was life like as, as Kim Ward, the non-politician? Um, tell us a bit about that uh, life before we get into your political life. Well, so I was a healthcare worker. Um, I worked at uh, Allegheny General, UPMC, Hershey Medical Center, and Vanderbilt University Hospital. So when I was in Vanderbilt University Hospital, it was uh, the late 70s, early 80s, we were there, and the, the AIDS virus popped its head up. And mm -hmm. one of my friends, uh, and he was a resident, I think he might have been an intern that year, but he, um, he was infected. And he didn't know he was infected because we hadn't heard of the AIDS virus yet. And he had some symptoms. Um, two years later, you know, Hasib is diagnosed with AIDS. In the meantime, he was married and had a baby. And they traced it back to a hemophiliac patient. And he got really, really active with government and funding to try to find out what can they do about this virus. Because back then, it was terrifying. I mean, people would get it and they would die and nobody knew where it came from or, you know, what it was about. So he got active and he talked to Congress. He talked to his, um, talked to the, uh, government officials. He was, I remember him on Phil Donahue. If that doesn't date how old I am. Oh yeah. He doesn't know that. Right. Um, and, um, I just, I don't know. It lit like a little fire under me that it does take activism. And I, I worked in the hospital and I, was really upset that they would not tell the lab techs who draw the blood, right? Or mm -hmm. the x-ray techs who roll patients over in the ICUs, 
who was infected. They just said, treat everybody like they're infected. And I, I, that wasn't a really fair way to treat healthcare workers because we're professionals and we want to work with these patients, but we needed to be able to protect ourselves. So I don't know. I just got, it just got things going. So I, I suppose um, when COVID came out with all these unknowns was, was somewhat of a, a flashback for you then. Yeah. You know, Matt, I didn't even realize, you know, I did that bill last year that they had to let first responders know if there was a, a patient that had a positive communicable disease in a house that they get called to. They don't have to use their name, but mm-hmm. that, you know, the Department of Health would let make sure that the 911 system knew so that those folks could protect themselves. And when I put the bill out at first, it was um, we didn't have enough PPE. There was a shortage of equipment. And these um, workers, need, they need to make sure that that equipment, that protective equipment got to the places that it needed to be. And it was a, it was an uphill climb, but we, we passed the bill and someone said to me, well, that's just like what you were doing back in the early eighties. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, so you're, you're working in healthcare. Um, and what was the first opportunity for you to, to run for office? And I mean, were you engaged politically uh, while you were in healthcare? I mean, would you say, yes, I'm a rah, rah conservative Republican or were, were politics just something on the side for you? And where, where did kind of political activity um, get into your blood? So I was active within, of course, you know, the Vanderbilt University hospital system with with all of this, but um, I continued, you know, I'm married to a physician and I uh, continued to see things that were happening in healthcare and I would write letters and do things to my elected officials. And actually Al Gore was my U.S. Senator. Uh, and then I moved up here back home and um, Jack Murtha was our Congressman, but I would mm-hmm. get like, um, you know, just these letters back that were not, they weren't specific to what I asked and I, it would irritate me. Uh, and I think, you know, that was the whole while it's kind of lighting my fire, right? I'm getting more and more involved and seeing what government is responsive is not responsive. And then, um, then Bill Clinton came on the scene and I, I just remember thinking, oh, there's something wrong here. And I walked into the Republican headquarters here in Greensburg and said, put me to work. I need to do something because there's something wrong with this guy. And I, I just did it. I don't even know where it came from. And so I have been, um, since that time, I worked really hard in the party for years. I was the county chairman. I was the Southwest caucus chairman for the state GOP. I was the statewide officer for the state GOP. Um, and I worked really hard to elect a lot of people. Um, Senator Santorum, uh, I worked, you know, worked with governor Ridge. Uh, I worked then for, for Mark Schweiker. I was his district director out here. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I thought once, you know, I've helped so many people get elected a lot. And I wonder, I should just try to get myself elected because I wonder what it's like on the other side. And so I'm working for Mark Schweiker and I'm seeing, I kind of like this policy stuff. And um, so I ran for supervisor in my township, Hemphill Township. And everybody kept saying, you can't run for that. You can't win it. There's no Republicans here. You're a woman. You're not going to win it. And, um, I recall knocking on doors and a lot of older women, no matter what party they were, would say, I'm voting for you. We need a woman. I, I, I couldn't do this in my generation. Um, I'm voting for you. 
And so I was been told I was going to lose, but we ended up coming in first place, top, top vote getter. Wow. And, um, yeah. And we, um, changed things right off the bat. We changed a lot of stuff in that township, professionalized it. We did a lot. And I really liked the policy. Um, I thought, gee, I love politics, but I love making change even more than I love politics. So that was it. Then I ran for, I did six years. I was chairwoman of the board there. Um, went to the county commissioner's office and then this seat was coming open and I had never thought about running for it. I did not want to run for it. Um, I was on that vac- being the uh, state Senate seat yes, uh, state Senate in 2008, seat. correct? I was on vacation uh, at the beach with my family and I get this phone call and um, I get a phone call that says from a media outlet that says, um, so you're going to run for the state Senate. And, and I said, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, so I, I, um, I called the state party because I didn't really even know Joe Scarnati or, or um, Dominic Pelleggi. I didn't know them. And I didn't know who to call. And they said, oh, yeah, Bob Regola is going to step down. And um, they've already done all their opposition research on you. And you have to run. We have one week to get you in. I said, I don't, I don't want to run. I don't want to run. I don't want to run. So um, I talked to my family and we decided then, I think I was 52. And we decided, well, what's the worst thing that happens? You're going to lose. Let's go for it. And we went for it. We had 10 weeks of door knocking and phone calls. And we knocked on about eight or 9,000 doors in 10 weeks. And we did phone calls and we did mail and TV. And I kept thinking, I'm never going to win this, but I'm going to work hard and try. And then, you know, we won. So here we are uh, just beginning my fourth term. It's been, uh, uh, it's been really good because we've made change, some good changes that, that help our communities and help the people we represent. And that, that's been very um, satisfying. You know, when you think about, yeah, not running again or not doing something, you think about how you've been able to help change things to make them better. And it's, it's just, it's humbling. Well, uh, you know, you've got uh, some big tasks ahead of you. You come in as the uh, new Senate majority leader in the midst of, you know, a pandemic, uh, in the midst of a governor that uh, has never seen a tax that he didn't want to raise or money he didn't want to spend, uh, or even, uh, you know, emergency declarations that uh, he didn't want to exploit. Um, and, uh, you know, that's one of the things I know you've led on is, is saying, hey, this governor isn't including the General Assembly, the people's voice in this decision-making process. And here we've crossed the one-year anniversary of his emergency declarations, and um, he has uh, utilized that power to have uh, really uh, unilateral and unlimited uh, powers in this de- declaration. Um, that, that caused you to to move even last uh, legislative session to say, look, uh, we need to restore some checks and balances and include the legislature in this. Correct. And it ended up being Senate Bill 2 that will, the constitutional amendment, it'll be on the ballot this May. And we had to go that route because we kept trying to work with the governor. We kept passing legislation and he just kept vetoing it. You know, even when you look at this overall, how they're handling 
the vaccine distribution, how they handled the closures of the businesses, what they did to restaurants without any empirical data, but instead using articles from other states about restaurants. I think that the um, electorate and the citizens and those who pay taxes here deserve to have a balance of power. They deserve to have a voice at the table. When they voted for a governor, it's not just this governor, it could be any governor. They didn't vote for that. That's They voted for a governor and a state rep and a state senator. They voted for balance of power, but that's not what they have. And I know that some on um, the Democratic Party are screaming, this is partisan, this is partisan. It's absolutely not. You know, two months ago, I had a Zoom call with many folks from the Arizona legislature, which is Republican and so is the governor. And they wanted to talk to me about SB2 and they have since passed their own version out of committee. I don't know where it is now. They passed it out of committee about a month ago. I mean, you see other states starting to make a move toward this because it's wrong. It's not, I mean, it's not America. Well, even Democratic uh, states where it's solid uh, Democrat legislature and governor saying, look, we need to restore this balance of power. And it's not taking away the ability for a governor to declare an emergency and to act. I mean, you, you even permit, you know, three weeks uh, of that. Um, it's just saying there needs to be a check and a balance of the General Assembly in this. And if the governor can make the case for continuing to exercise executive authority uh, without legislative input, uh, it, they can do that. Uh, it just has to be approved by the people's representatives, correct? Yes. I mean, look at this now. A governor is the only person that can call a state of emergency. When a governor does that, they consolidate power. They can put in mandates. They can overrule laws. Look what they did to the election laws last year. They do whatever they want. They are like an emperor. But that person is the only person that can end the state of emergency. You know, I know there's a, you know, a, a, an opportunity for the legislature to end the state of emergency. But when we send it to the governor, he vetoes it. And we haven't been able to get Democrats to get on board to help us. So the only way to get around this governor and this very left-leaning partisan Supreme Court is to take it to the people. Well, in fact, what the Supreme Court did in really rewriting statute is create a barrier that is higher than actually impeaching the governor, um, needing two-thirds vote in both the House and the Senate to, to impeach uh, this governor, you would just need, um, uh, you know, a majority in the House and then two thirds of the Senate. So uh, they've erected a barrier that, um, um, you know, uh, one, it's a rewriting of the law. I think the law was very clear that uh, uh, the legislature can rescind uh, said declaration, you know, emergency declaration. Um, but changing our constitution will make that very, very clear and voters will have that opportunity on May 18 uh, to, uh, well, uh, decide whether they want to have a governor with uh, unlimited and unilateral powers or they want one with a check and balance. So I commend you for, for leading that charge. Thank you. Well, on, the, on other fronts, I know a lot of issues that people are concerned about um, are just, you know, in general, calling it election integrity, um, that, you know, because Pennsylvania 
adopted some major, major um, changes to how we voted. And, you know, a lot of this was done before COVID was even in the picture, uh, really expanding some of the mail-in options. But then we certainly had a um, uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court that decided to override uh, laws, um, sounds familiar, um, and, and uh, uh, unfortunately changed some of the ways that, that created massive confusion as well as lots of lawsuits uh, because of that. Um, what, what, what's the General Assembly, what do you see, I guess, particularly that the, the Senate doing to uh, give people confidence that our elections going forward are ones that they can trust? So we have a Senate Election Integrity um, Committee Task Force, and they are looking at all the laws. It appears to me at first glance that they need to have a penalty when they say, you know, you're you're allowed to, to observe. For example, you're allowed to observe, you know, watchers are allowed to observe. There needs to be a penalty if you're not permitted to observe, because if not, the Supreme Court and whoever wants to will stretch the laws. You know, when we did the Act 77, it wasn't, you know, everybody's favorite, but, you know, a lot of states have mail-in ballots. Florida has a mail-in ballot. President Trump voted like that. So, but what happens is they end up in the state Supreme Court. Uh, Our leadership in the Senate was negotiating with the governor on some issues. And right in the middle of the negotiations, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania comes out and gives them everything they want. You know, drop boxes were not in our law. I, I never even heard of a drop box before. You know, they just they just make stuff up. They're driving a drop box around Philadelphia. It's a nice moving drop box. It's just uh, it's wrong, and they did it under the guise of the emergency mm-hmm. because of COVID, and that's what they used the emergency for. So as long as the governor can keep this emergency going, they can continue to, for all practical purposes, and excuse my language, bastardize the laws to their liking. So the, the, the challenge, of course, is going to be a governor who has liked all of the rulings coming out of the hyper-partisan Supreme Court uh, is, uh, I guess, getting him to come to the negotiating table um, to make sure that we uh, reform some of these things and, and curtail uh, some of this expansion that uh, was not written in the law, um, but that we abide by the laws that, uh, that are on the books, right? But the governor, why would he come to the table? Like, why would he do that? Yeah. You know, why would he do well, that? He gets everything he wants. And then the Supreme Court, um, you know, gives him everything he wants. And then our United States Supreme Court says, well, that's a state issue. And I go to, well, if you have an, a state Supreme Court, which we do, that is, as your words, hyperpartisan, who is to protect the people to protect the people so that they have the government that they are guaranteed under the constitution. Who's going to protect us? Mm-hmm. It's a very, very um, scary, slippery scope. I think it's horrible. It's just, it's horrible. It's been a, not a good year for so many, so many businesses have gone out, you know, people have died. Um, people have died alone in nursing homes. Um, it's just, it's been a bad, bad year. And this governor has not shown anything that he's is even looking at perhaps lifting restrictions. You know, we have West Virginia out here in the western part of the state. West Virginia, 45 minutes from me, uh, very much closer to a lot of um, folks. They're fully open. 
Guess what? All of our businesses, all of our folks are going to end up in West Virginia. They're going to restaurants. They're going out. Mm-hmm. You know, this guy, the governor, hasn't. I mean, the, the people want to plan things for the summer. He has given no indication that he's going to even bring things back for banquets at 50%. And the, all the while, the numbers are going down, right? Um, more people are getting vaccines. But here we are. Here we are. Well, we hope that uh, certainly all these pressures build, and, and even as we are, you know, recording this, uh, hearing about other blue states, if you will, that are opening up far faster uh, than is Pennsylvania, and, and hopefully uh, we will also be able to curtail uh, some of these abuses of power. And uh, you know, thankfully, your constitutional amendment will be before the voters here. Uh, in May. Um, what other uh, issues uh, are of urgent matter uh, before the Senate right now that uh, you all are working on? I know Governor Wolf has proposed a 46 percent uh, increase in the personal income tax. Uh, how did that uh, proposal uh, fly in, in the Republican Senate caucus? Well, I mean, that is just really... That is a lead balloon an understatement? No, or, a lead uh, balloon would be an appropriate statement. Um He's tone deaf. So while you're, these businesses are dying, where people aren't working, we're going to raise your taxes. It's crazy. It's just, it's just very, very progressive thinking. Now look, I think Governor Wolf is a very nice man. He is a gentleman always, um, but I just don't agree with him on this left leaning progressive agenda. I don't agree with him and I don't know where it comes from. Mm. <laughs> I mean, who, who's, who's advising him? Well, uh, certainly we hope that it's so outlandish that uh, uh, the, the taxpayers of Pennsylvania don't have to worry uh, about his ideas uh, becoming law anytime soon. Um, but uh, hey, we've we've uh, uh, taken up plenty of your time and, and I really appreciate your joining me here and, and I hope we'll have you know, continued conversations going forward because there's so many things that I know you will be addressing uh, and leading on. Thanks so much, uh, Senator Kim Ward, Majority Leader of the Pennsylvania Republican Caucus. Thanks for joining me, Kim. You've been listening to Brews and Views, a production of Commonwealth Partners Chamber of Entrepreneurs. Find us on Facebook at Commonwealth Partners and follow Matt Briette at M-A-T-T-B-R-O-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. 